Well, in our last time together, we, we took a 30,000-foot view of the topic of the glory of Christ. We joined Moses on the mountaintop when he dared to ask the Lord, show me your glory. And God did. He passed by Moses, who he had hidden in the cleft of a rock, and he declared his own goodness in the form of a, of a summary of his divine attributes, his compassion and his graciousness and forbearance and loving kindness and truthfulness and mercy and justice. And we saw God's glory in the fullness of His divine perfections. It's who He is put on display. But along with the revelation of His attributes, His perfections, we noted that whenever God displays His glory, there is a manifested visible light that is seen, a radiant, burning, white, shining light. And since We understand that the Son of God is one in divinity with the Father. We expect to see the same kind of glory from Him as with the Father, which we do. In fact, in many places in the New Testament, the disciples testify that they themselves have witnessed the glory of Christ. The Apostle John, in referring to the Son of God as the Word, says that Jesus declared that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and he says, and we beheld his glory. Peter, in his second letter, testified to seeing Jesus receiving honor and glory from God the Father, who uttered in his own approval of the Son in what Peter calls the majestic glory. Now, we also know that beholding the Son of God in the glory of Christ, it happens in two ways. We talked about this last week. We can behold the glory of Christ by sight, which is what the disciples would testify to, or we behold the glory of Christ by faith, which is how the majority of believers throughout the course of history have beheld Him and how we behold Him even today. We behold Christ's glory by faith, by faith through the Scriptures, by faith in doctrinal truth, by faith in acts of providence. And this is essential for us as believers And we noted last week as Puritan scholar John Owen writes, as we behold the glory of Christ by faith here in this world, our hearts will be drawn more and more to Christ and to the full enjoyment of the sight of His glory hereafter. And so we must behold Him by faith here, and there we will behold Him by sight one day when we see Him face to face. But it is the unique experience of men like Moses and Elijah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, as well as the unique experience of men like Peter, James, and John, all of these servants of God, they beheld the glory of God by sight so that we, through the Scriptures, can behold it by faith. And it's one of those experiences that we want to spend our time looking at today. So turn your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We are moving our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Many events have led up to what we are now reading in Matthew 17. The disciples have finally confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus himself in turn announces the creation of the church, which is the assembly of his redeemed people. It is all believers everywhere. That is what comprises the church. And he has also foretold of his 
coming death and resurrection, which Peter tries to stop and thwart, earning a very harsh rebuke from the Lord. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not considering the interests of God, but you're considering your own interest. I'm paraphrasing now. But that's what he rebukes him with. And then Jesus then teaches them, it is not those who are self-willed who inherit the kingdom of God, but those who deny themselves in submission to the will of God. He says, those are the ones who will see heaven. At which point Jesus tells the disciples, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And while there is certainly an end times reality to the fulfillment of this promise, as we will see, the disciples will get a preview of Christ's glory before too long. And that's the title of this morning's message, is a preview of Christ's glory. Matthew 17, you can look at your copy of Scripture with me. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Matthew really notes a, a time stamp here of the events that are taking place from the time of their, their wanderings in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16 and the occurrence of the transfiguration in this passage. So there's a time difference there. This takes place six days later. Six days later. And this is soon enough where the disciples would surely not forget everything they had learned six days prior. But on this particular occasion, we need to see that Jesus selects out three men and forms this group of Peter and James and John, and he leads them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, many have tried to identify which mountain this is. There's been a lot of theories. One long-standing tradition is that this is Mount Tabor, which is in the south of Galilee. But the reason people don't necessarily agree that it's Mount Tabor is Mount Tabor is not very high. It's not a super high mountain. So there's some conjecture about that. Others believed it might be Mount Hermon or Mount Miron, which is the highest mountain in Israel. But the truth is we don't exactly know which mountain this is. All we know is that this is a very high mountain, and they're taken up to the top of this mountain, but we, what we do know is who goes up. Jesus goes up this mountain along with Peter and James and John, his brother. Well, why did Jesus take these three men? Well, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus ministering alongside various groups of people, specifically the disciples, and there were those who were called simply that. They were just called the disciples. And we don't know exactly how many there were, but there were at least 70 at one point. We know that in Acts chapter 1, there's 120 that are up in the upper room praying together. 
So it's not thousands upon thousands upon thousands, but there are quite a number of disciples that are with Jesus. And so that's one larger group that he spends his time with. And then inside of that group, we see a special closer group that is known as the Twelve. And all their names are recorded in Scripture. With the exception of one, they all remain, and then he is replaced. Obviously, I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. He's replaced by Matthias and Acts, the book of Acts. But these are the twelve. These are the ones that Jesus primarily spends most of his time, and these are the ones who become his apostles, those who have his designated authority to minister. But then inside of even that group, there is a smaller inner circle which consisted primarily of Peter, James, John, and sometimes Andrew. There is a smaller group here. And so here we see that Jesus breaks away from the larger group and takes this smaller, more intimate group of men, namely Peter and James and John, and they together travel up this high mountain. And the question is, for what purpose? Why are they going up to this very high mountain? Well, Luke 9.28, which is a parallel account to this passage, Luke 9 tells us that they were going up this mountain to pray. They were getting some time away by themselves to go and pray. And while Jesus is praying, something happens. Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now, Matthew uses a word in the Greek here. If you were to look at it, it looks very similar to the word metamorphosis, which is where we get that word. It's, it's a similar word, and it literally means to change form, to change form. And so what's taking place here? Why, what is, what's happening when he transfigures or transforms here? What is going on? Well, Matthew describes that Jesus' face begins shining like the sun, and his clothes become white as light. Luke adds more detail here and notes that the clothes were white and gleaming. White and gleaming. While Mark, in a similar passage, adds that they became radiant and exceedingly white. And then he just goes on to describe as no launderer on earth can whiten them. They were as white as white could be. So you get this picture here of his face and his clothing radiant and exceedingly white and gleaming and pure white. Now we know that this is not describing Jesus becoming something or changing into something. Rather, this is the temporary peeling away of his visible humanity to reveal a glimpse of his wonderful divinity. This is not the transformation to become something or someone else. This is like a, like a, a, a cocoon where inside the butterfly is about to emerge. It's something like that, not a transformation into something new. This is the revelation of His glorified person. This is the earthly display of Christ's glory. And notice, whereas we think back in our text last week, where Moses' face, when he saw the glory of God, Moses' face reflected God's glory. And when he came down off the mountain, he had to put a veil in front of his face to shield the people from seeing the reflected glory. Here, it's different. Because here, Christ's face is the source of that glory. There is a radiated glory that is intrinsic to Him. It, it resides within Him. He Himself is glorious. 
And so this is the visible manifestation of His divine glory. Later, if you read John's Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, John himself sees Christ in heaven. He sees a vision of Christ in heaven and describes Jesus at that point as being girded with the golden girdle and says his hair is white like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze glowing hot, and his face is shining like the sun. That's Revelation 1, 13 through 16. A similar kind of majestic vision. Or if you could want to put it simpler than that, Hebrews 1.3 says that He, referring to Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. So Jesus Himself, when we see His glory, He is radiating God. He radiates pure divinity. And it is a sight to behold. Notice that here when we see Christ's glory in the text here, it's a glory that is marked by light versus darkness which indicates His truth and His righteousness and His brilliance. Everything about Christ is light. We also see a, a, a vision of whiteness here, indicating purity or, or holiness. There is nothing that is flawed. There is nothing that is dirty on Christ. His clothes, His, his visible image is such that it's pure and white and clean. His holiness is purity. And then we also see His radiance here which is the power of His majesty, where Christ's person, His divinity, His glory is just radiating and bursting forth like the sun, but more than 10,000 suns. This is Christ's resplendent, majestic glory. Now at this point, Luke records something that Matthew doesn't. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the same story, but just with slightly... uh, new information or information added in the cracks here to give us more but Luke says in Luke 9:34 that Peter and his companions remember they're supposed to be on the hill on the mountain with him praying but it says they had been overcome with sleep this becomes a recurring problem for the disciples they're supposed to be praying on the mountain and they're sleeping they fall asleep but that happens here they're sleeping but then it says when they were fully awake they saw his glory And they also saw two men standing with him, which we're going to get to in just a second. So again, the disciples are supposed to be praying, but they had fallen asleep, but they were no doubt awoken by the sight of Christ's glory, and they immediately noticed that he's not alone. Verse 3, Matthew adds, and behold, now notice what he's doing in the text here, this word behold, it's meant to grab our attention, the reader. He says, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, we don't know how they know that these two men are Moses and Elijah. Maybe it's that Moses had a a scroll of the book of the law under his arm, or maybe Elijah had a chariot parked in the side. I don't know. I don't know how they know that this is Moses and Elijah, but they know who these two men are. 
There's something about them. There's something that has been revealed to them about who these two men are that are standing there. Now keep in mind here that both of these men have been gone from the earth for hundreds of years. At that point, Moses had been gone for more than 1,400 years, almost 1,500 years. Elijah, probably for about seven or 800 years. These men have been gone from the earth for a long, long, long time, and yet the disciples know exactly who that is when they see. Now many have wondered about the significance of why Moses and Elijah are there appearing in glory with Jesus. Why out of all the millions and billions of people and out of the certainly hundreds and hundreds of people listed in the Bible, why these two? Well, both men were heroes of the Jewish faith. Both men were functioning as prophets. They had a prophetic office. They were both revered for their godliness. But I think there's a better reason. Moses is seen as the bringer of the law. He was the giver of the law, and for that he was highly esteemed. I mean, when you were, if you were a Jew in this time, and even Jews today who don't regard Christ as the Messiah, but even, even then, they would regard Moses in a high esteem. He's the one who gave us the Torah. He gave us the, uh, the, the law and, uh, and gave us uh, what we call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, but this is the basis of our religion. He's the lawgiver. With the exception of Abraham, you could not find a Jew who was more respected, more esteemed, and more honored than Moses. But again, he represents the law, the law of God. And then you have Elijah. Elijah is regarded as perhaps the greatest prophet in Israel's history. And like Moses, he's esteemed and highly honored. In fact, at the Passover meal... Every Jewish family, even to this day, leaves a seat at the table for Elijah because according to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, it prophesies that he's actually going to come back to the earth before the coming of Messiah. And so if you were to go to a, a, a Jewish Passover meal, even today, an Orthodox Jew, they would set the table and do all the, all the fixings on the table, and there'd be an empty chair for Elijah at the table because they're waiting for his return because once he gets here, the Messiah will come. And they'll, they'll tell you that even to this day. But Elijah here epitomizes the work of the prophets. The work of the prophets. And so together, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. In other words, the entire Hebrew Scriptures as we call them the Old Testament, which was what they had at the time. Well, why is that important? Why does it matter that the, the Old Testament is represented, the law and the prophets are represented with Jesus? Well, because in John 5.39, Jesus declares that it is the Scriptures that bear witness to the Christ. They all bear witness to Jesus. Everything in the Scriptures points to Christ, either in the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ or the New Testament pointing back to Christ in that central position. But all of the Word of God points to the living Word of God, the incarnate Word of God. More than this, it was an illustration to the disciples that all the Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, finds its fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment in the revelation of Jesus. Everything is about Christ. And so they were there to testify to these three witnesses that everything ultimately is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here they are. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. Can you imagine standing there like a fly on the wall? What is going on? They're talking with Jesus in a glorified state. 
What are they talking about? Matthew doesn't tell us. But I'll tell you what, Luke does. Luke tells us what's going on. It says in Luke 9.31, And they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so what the disciples are struggling to comprehend was that in six months, Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem to travel there, to be persecuted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, to suffer persecution, to be murdered and put on the cross, and then later on, a third day, third day later, to rise from the grave. They, they couldn't comprehend this. And that is actually, if you remember in your mind, a little bit backwards there, uh, what, what Peter was revolting against. Jesus was telling them this is going to happen, and he didn't want to hear it. Forget the fact that Jesus is going to resurrect. He didn't want to hear that. Lord, you're not going to go and die. God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. Remember that? Well, now Jesus is talking about this very thing with Moses and Elijah. Transfigured and glorified with Christ, standing, talking about what's about to happen in a few months. It's almost as if Jesus is saying in this vision here, Peter, even Moses and Elijah foresaw this and they're testifying to you all what I'm about to do. It's almost as if he's saying, if you don't believe me, at least believe them, but believe me. He's working backwards. Do you see that? But all of this testifies to the fact that this is about to happen. This will happen. It has to happen. It's actually in the end good that it does happen. Well, how do the disciples respond to this amazing sight look at verse four now as soon as you read the word peter you just have to oh boy (laughs) peter says verse four he said to jesus lord it is good for us to be here if you wish i will make three tabernacles here one for you and one for moses and one for elijah now what you have to remember where they are here they're waking up suddenly they've been sleeping They wake up and the first thing, they rub their eyes, they don't even know what's going on. What they see is an amazing sight that no one else has ever seen before. This glorified, wonderful, marvelous, startling thing. Mark tells us that none of them knew what to say because they were in total shock. They didn't know what to say. Peter had no idea what to do. What do you you say to that? All they see is they see Jesus, who they know, glorified. They see Moses. They see Elijah. What do you do? So Peter exclaims, Lord, it is good for us to be here. That's the understatement of the year, my friends. Of course it's good for you to be here. That's why I brought you up the mountain. But he says, it is good for us to be here. And then he reacts really impetuously and volunteers this. If you wish, we will build three tabernacles here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why was he talking about tabernacles? Well, biblical scholars believe on this account that this takes place, the transfiguration takes place in the Jewish month of Tishri, which is our October. Now, one of the major festivals that was taking place in Israel at that time was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this festival was prescribed in Scripture, and it consists of people building these small shelters, a little booth, and it was meant to, uh, to function as a reminder of what life would have been like for the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. So this is not a, a permanent house. It's a, just a small little shack. You build this shack and you live in it for seven days and then you kind of have the experience. It's like going camping, but not as much fun. 
right? So you build this little shack, and you live in it for seven days, and, you, and there's a sense memory there. There's something about it. You, you feel this connection to my ancestors who lived like this for 40 years. You know, mom and dad, why do we have to do this? This is only a week, kids. Imagine doing this for 40 years, and they go, wow, right? It does something to your mind to actually live like that for a couple of days. So that's the celebration. That's the memorial to remember our ancestors who wandered in the wilderness of sin for 40 years before they could go to the promised land. It was a reminder. Leviticus 23 prescribes this observance and the Lord tells them, you shall live in a booth seven days so that your generations may know that I have the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then he says this, I am the Lord your God. Remember that I did this. This is one of the most prevalent things that keeps on coming back over and over again in Israel's history. Remember when I led you out of the wilderness? Remember when I led you out of Egypt? Remember when you crossed over the Red Sea? Remember, remember, remember my faithfulness. And so that's what's probably in their mind during this time. They prepared for the, for the feast, and Peter foolishly offers to build these tabernacles to accommodate these three in a glorified state in front of him. <clears throat> now, scholars have debated the significance of the suggestion. Why, why build three tabernacles? Well, some have said it was because Peter wanted to build them a, a home that he could stay there. They wouldn't leave. If I build you three tabernacles, you have to be here for at least a week. I want you to stay with us on this mountain. Remember, it's good to be here. I want you to stay with us for the, le- for the next seven days and don't leave. I want to live in this moment for, for the next couple days. That's one thought. And that, and that could be. Remember, in your mind, that Peter had already bristled against the idea of Jesus going and, and dying and going away. So this might have been a humanistic attempt for him to keep Jesus here a little longer because he doesn't know the timeline. There's another suggestion, which I think is more likely. Luke 9.33 tells us that Peter didn't realize what he was saying. He didn't realize what he was saying. He was terrified. He was manic. And so what he says really doesn't make any sense. We'll build three tabernacles. What are you talking about? Why would you do that, Peter? It was foolish. He didn't understand. He was in a panic state. But based on God's response, I think we can surmise why Peter is proposing this. And I want to give you some insight here but look at verse 5 before we do that while he was still speaking a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him these words are important friends if you have the exodus in your mind this makes even more sense this all becomes clearer and we see that here in the middle of talking, and it's right in mid-sentence as Peter is talking to them, a voice, a, a bright cloud overshadows them and a voice comes out from the cloud. But, but what is this cloud? What is this bright cloud that is enveloping them? Well, if you again, keep this in your mind from the Exodus here, this is the glory cloud that followed the Israelites. This is where God was met. It was a visible representation of the Father's presence. Because again, God is spirit, we can't see Him. But he would give sort of these visible things that we could see. Theophanies, which is a, a visible manifestation of God. It's not God himself, but he's putting himself 
in, in images that we can actually look at. But this cloud overshadows them and swallows them up. And suddenly they're being swallowed up by this huge bright cloud. And as they're in this cloud, a voice thunders and bursts forth from the cloud. And they hear it with their ears. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now this is important because this is only one of three times that God speaks audibly from heaven in the Gospels. We don't hear this all the time. It's not every day that God speaks from heaven. Only three times here. The first time happens at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew chapter 3. God thunders His voice from the heavens. The second time happens here at the mountain of transfiguration. And the third occurrence is in John 12, 28, just before Jesus goes to the cross. So these, these voice messages from God punctuate certain key events of Jesus' ministry at the very beginning, at the transfiguration, and right at the end before the cross. These are significant. And so here we have the audible voice of God the Father speaking about His pure satisfaction of the Son. And then God corrects Peter's wayward thinking. See, here's the thing. Jews were, listen, they were trained to listen to Moses from the time they could, they could even walk and talk and read and speak. Remember Deuteronomy 6? They were trained to know the Scriptures and to read the, the law and know the law. All the Pharisees knew the law by heart. So they were trained to listen to the voice of Moses. They were trained to listen to the voice of Elijah and the prophets. But even Moses, mark this, even Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 told Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. And what does Moses say? You shall listen to him. Moses 1,400 years before this, tells Israel, there's another prophet coming. Someone better than me. Listen to him. So Moses prepared them for this. And who is this Moses-like prophet? Well, certainly it's Christ. Certainly it's Christ. And my suspicion is that by offering to build three tabernacles for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, Peter is placing all of them on the same plane and making them equal and venerating them all together. Because there's nothing wrong with building a tabernacle. Because all the Jews did that. That's not the problem. The problem is what is happening in his heart. He's venerating the three of them equally. Okay, we've got Moses, we've got Elijah, we've got Jesus, we've got the whole package. But God puts a stop to that. Yes, Moses is the lawgiver. Yes, Elijah is the prophet. But you, you listen to Jesus. You listen to Him. He is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all of that. He's who Moses and Elijah were talking about. Again, Moses is the prophet pointing forward. Elijah, remember, he's coming. He's the forerunner. And we know that John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Remember Jesus says that? But all of these things and these two men, they typify the most eminent Jewish leaders in all of their history. And even those two most eminent men are pointing to the one, to Jesus Christ alone. He's the one you listen to. Christ is supreme. Even now. Christ is supreme. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, 
they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Beloved, this is a common experience for those who have beheld the living God. When Ezekiel heard God's voice, he fell down on his face. Daniel 10.9, he reports that he hears the voice of the Lord and he says, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face on the ground. In other words, it put him into a coma, essentially. Revelation 1.17, John fell down as a dead man. And so the disciples, they, they experienced the abject fear of a holy God. And I always bristle and I always struggle when I hear people talk about an experience they have where God comes down and sits with them and watches TV with them or talks to them casually in their car. I've read stories about this. I've read books like this. I've heard stuff on TV about this. And how do you know it's not true? Because if it was really the voice of God, you'd be dead on the ground with your face planted. Every time. There's not a single time when a servant of God is not prostrate before the presence of God, terrified to move. And that's what happens to these men here. They see the glory cloud. They hear God's words, His voice, and they are terror-stricken. And they're frozen. But then, oh beloved, then, verse 7, and Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. Oh, Oh my heart, I love this. In the same moment we see the awesome and terrifying glory of the Lord, we also see His compassion and His tenderness. And yes, we understand Isaiah 42.8 that where the Lord declares, I will not share my glory with another. Don't you dare worship Moses and Elijah. Banish them. You worship me alone. I will not share my glory. We see that. Yes, we understand. But here, Jesus forgives Peter's unwitting sin, his folly, and He even bears with his foolishness. He doesn't say, get behind me, Satan, again. But rather, it says He came to them. And look at this. He touched them. He doesn't grab them. He doesn't shake them. He doesn't strike them. He touches them like a tender father would do. And He comforts them and reassures them. And then He says this, and I imagine in a soft voice, Get up. Do not be afraid. This is the same response that he gives to John in Revelation 1.17. John says, and now you have to remember here, John was there on the mountain. John's there again in Revelation 1.17 50 years later. But John says, He laid His right hand upon me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And so with the same voice that God uses to terrify sinners, He also speaks peace to comfort the forgiven. God uses His voice to us in such a way where we, we fear Him, we revere Him, we stand in awe of Him, but His words are comfort and peace to us. He doesn't speak to us as enemies. He speaks to us as beloved children. Verse 8, 
And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus Himself alone. Remember, in the end, we see the truth of Jesus' words in Revelation 1.17. I just read them a minute ago. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And so it's Christ and Christ alone. It's always been Christ. It will always be Christ. It's not Christ and Moses or Elijah. It's not Christ and Mary or other mediators. It's not Christ and His angels. It's not Christ and the heroes of the faith as much as I love them. It's not. We regard no man, no woman higher. We're not meant to give our heart and our veneration and our worship to anybody else. No one but Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the display of Christ's glory, we know that all glory and honor and worship and tribute and reverence and love all belong solely to Him. But here's the problem. Our hearts deviate. We want to worship another. Our hearts begin to become fickle. And we begin to assign tribute and honor and worship and glory and respect to lower things. Maybe it is the heroes of the faith. Those who regard Aquinas or Calvin or Augustine or anybody else as in this high position. Honor them for who they are, of course, but they do not even belong remotely close to the plane of Christ. We do it with other things too. We do it with our jobs. We do it with our hobbies. We do it with our relationships. Sometimes we can put our spouse in this high place where Christ belongs. Sometimes we put our children in that high place where Christ belongs. Or, worse than that, we put ourselves and our desires and our fleshliness in the place where Christ belongs. I will not share my glory with another, the Lord says. Guard yourself. But all glory belongs to Christ. All of it. And heaven declares this to be true. Revelation 4.11, we read the, the heavenly creatures and the leaders of men, all of them, the Bible says, worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before His throne. They take whatever they have for merit and they say, Lord, it's Yours. They cast their crowns before Him and say, My glory, whatever it is, is Your glory, Lord. Or they declare, worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created everything, all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Or we read in Revelation 5, 12 and 13, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him sits on the throne of the Lamb, and blessing and honor and glory and dominion belongs to Him forever and ever. That's the refrain of heaven. That all honor, all glory is to be given and ascribed to Christ. But let us not forget, He already possesses all glory. It already belongs to Him. So we don't add anything to Him. No, there's the, the Bible uses the word ascribe. 
We ascribe glory to Him. What does that mean? It means that we see His glory by faith. And we declare with our mouths and with our hearts, Yes, Lord, Your glory is Your glory. All praise, all glory belongs to You. We see it and we ascribe it back to Him. And we say, You are precious. You are righteous. You are worthy of all my praise. And one day, beloved, we will see His glory not by faith, but we will see His glory by sight. For Christ has promised to return. And when He does, according to Matthew 24.30, everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. And yet we have this promise. 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And so how do we grow in holiness and Christ-likeness? And I've been pondering this for a while and for years, frankly. Always considering how to grow, how to be more like Christ. And I would encourage you, if you don't think about these kinds of things, you ought to. How do I grow in Christ's likeness? It's not just a matter of muscling up and doing better. Are you to strive for godliness? Absolutely, you are to strive. But the power of your striving doesn't come from you. It comes from Him. He's the one who wills to do good work in you for His good pleasure, is He not? So He's the one who empowers you to live for Him. But what is it? What is it that empowers this desire for Christ-likeness, striving for holiness? It's the sight of Him. He's the one. When you look at Him and you see His perfection, you become aware of your imperfection. You see His righteousness and you see how unrighteous you are. You see His love and His kindness and you're convicted of your unkindness. And then in the light of that conviction, you say, Lord, I want that. I want to be where You are. And it motivates godliness. It motivates Christ-likeness. For 2 Corinthians 3.18 declares to us, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. And then he says this, when we do this, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. So he's saying here that the Spirit of God works in us and begins to transform us at the heart level, and He does so as we behold the glory of Christ. This is why, beloved, it is so important that we see Him by faith. We want to see Him by sight. We want all the images. I want to to see what He's doing. But don't substitute that desire for something fake. See His glory by faith in the Scriptures, in doctrine, in providence. Understand what your heart is doing here when you want to see Him, His glory by faith. Your desire is to be with Him, to be like Him, and to grow into His image. 2 Corinthians 4.6 The Bible says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, 
God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In short, if you're able to behold the glory of Christ in your heart by faith, it is because God has given you spiritual eyes to see Him. When you read the Scriptures, when you read Matthew 17, and you read and then you stop and you meditate like a, like a cow chews the cud. When you meditate and you just work the verses over and you begin to see the image there, it's not a false image. You're seeing it in your heart by faith, with eyes of faith. And you see, oh Lord, you're glorious. And you see Him step down and touch His disciples and tell them not to be afraid. And your heart melts and you say, oh Lord, oh Lord, I love your tenderness. I love your compassion. You see Him by faith. And you're meant to see Him this way. He gives sight to those who belong to Him. He gives sight to those who have been saved. He gives sight to those who have been adopted. He gives sight to those who have been redeemed. Which brings us then to the logical question. Well, how do you know if that's you? Do you know the Lord? Do you see Him? When you read the Scriptures, does your heart behold Him? Or are they merely dead words on a page? Have you believed on Him? Have you seen your sinfulness when you really are honest with yourself and ask yourself, am I good enough to go to heaven? To dwell in unapproachable light and impurity with God? Do I have enough holiness and purity in my own life to be with Him? Or is my heart wicked? And I'll tell you, it's easy because you think, well, I don't do things that are that bad. But if your thought life could be downloaded and projected onto a screen for all to see, would you be ashamed or would you be fine with that? I would be terrified. So yes, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. So we see our sin and we look at God and His perfection and we say, I can't even touch that. And we hear His voice thundering from the clouds and it strikes us dead. And so once you realize that you're lost and you're dead without Him, the only response is to turn by repentance and faith and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me and forgive me. And by His grace, He does forgive. That's why He sent His Son to the cross to die in your place, to earn your forgiveness to absorb the wrath of God against your sin and mine. And when all that wrath is satisfied on the Son with whom He is well pleased, then we have access to God. Then we have eternal life by faith alone. And we see Him on the cross and we say, thank You, Lord, for giving Your life for me. I confess all my sins. Please take them away. Forgive them get rid of them. I hate them. I want them gone. But please forgive me and save me by Your grace. And by His grace, He does. 
we are justified. We have a right standing before God by faith and by faith alone in Christ and in Christ alone. And what for what purpose? As the Reformers used to say, all for the glory of God alone. God, Your glory is so marvelous to us. And we do. We see Your glory by faith. We don't get alone and see You in the glory cloud. We don't see You on the top of a mountain beaming forth light and purity and radiance. But we do read Your Word and we do know who You are And we do see Your acts of providence and loving kindness toward us. And Lord, our hearts are are set ablaze. And we do see You. We see You by faith. And so Lord, I'd ask that You would work in us to make Yourself visibly even more glorious to us. Your glory is unmatched. But that we would grow and our apprehension, our ability to see Your glory, that You would do that that in us. And Lord, not just to see it alone for what it is, which is already marvelous, but that we would behold Your glory and become more like You, to be transformed ourselves, growingly and increasingly, to become more like You in Your glory. Lord, there are so many things that stand in that way. My sins are so great. My impurity is so great. And Lord, in my own flesh, I do awful things. I say awful things. I think awful things. My hands would be hands of wickedness if they were not restrained. And all of us have that same testimony. On our own, we are wicked. But because of Your mercy and Your loving kindness, and Your forbearance, and Your forgiveness of sins, You tell us, don't be afraid. I am with You. And so God, that You would show Your mercy and show Your forgiveness to us all this morning. And Lord, if there are any here who are struggling with this, who don't see You, who don't know You, who are struggling to get closer to You, I pray, Lord, that You would break through all of that. Smash down those walls, Lord. Melt the the hardened wax around our hearts and soften them to You that we might behold You all the more as glorious because You are. Lord, that You would display the beautiful and radiant glory of Christ. We praise You. We honor you. We glorify you even now. In Jesus' name, amen.